Please take God's word and turn with me to our scripture reading this morning, which will be in Revelation chapter 16. Pastor Eric is continuing his sermon series in the book of Revelation. If you are in need of a Bible, I invite you to grab one of those red pew Bibles in front of, uh, in front of you and follow as I, as I read. Once again, Revelation <clears throat> chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped in its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person's, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out on his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as to not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of a lightning, rumble, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth, so tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstorms, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Kids, first of all, you are dismissed to worship kid style. Worship kid style is our time of age-appropriate teaching for children up to fifth grade. And so if you have kids, you're welcome to send them. You're also welcome to keep them here with you in the service if you would like. We're delighted to have them. 
Let's pray now as we turn to this text. God and Father, you are Lord and King over all the earth, and you come and speak to us through your word. And I pray that we would now be attentive to it, even though we're sinners, submitting ourselves to what it teaches. I pray that you would be with me, though I am a sinner, as I proclaim it. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, years ago, I encountered this idea that I still often think about, and it's from this theologian named Hans Urs von Balthasar, who I'm not recommending. He's kind of a weird guy, actually. But he had this idea that stuck with me. First, he says, um, there's three ways that something can be great, something can be virtuous. This is not original him. This is Aristotle. But he says something can be true, it can be morally good, it can be beautiful, right? So truth, moral goodness, beauty, he says. And he's, Christianity is all three of those things. And what Balthazar observes is he says a lot of people today feel like the world has lost sight of Christianity's truth, right? That they're questioning the sort of foundational things that Christianity teaches. And a lot of people today will comment that people seem to have lost sight of Christianity's moral goodness and values and that in a way that they used to kind of acknowledge and agree with that, that now they're in disagreement with it. But what von Balthasar said was that he argued that that actually happened because first, before that, people lost sight of Christianity's beauty, that they lost a sense of the beauty, the glory of God and his splendor and the beautiful grace of the gospel and the beauty of Christianity. And without beauty, those other things just don't make sense. The truth, he says, without beauty is just like facts that you're, you know, being demanded to believe. And that morality without beauty is just sort of rules that you're arbitrarily being asked to follow. And if you don't have a sense that the truth is beautiful, that, that moral virtue is noble, then that actually makes it lose their power. And I was thinking about that because in many ways, what I think Revelation is doing is tapping into some of that observation. So this is, this morning we read the third cycle of seven judgments. We already had two cycles of these seven judgments falling on the earth. And we've said when we looked at them, you can go back and listen to those sermons, they're not three separate events. There's a lot of parallels and they seem to overlap and they're really accounting the same sort of thing. And what they're about, we said, is that they're showing God's judgment on the order of this age. And this one especially is patterned on kind of the plagues of Egypt as the imagery for which God's judgment is falling. But what's going on here, we as Christians are called to fight against sin, and this section of Revelation is ultimately calling us to fight against sin and endure in the faith. If you want, like, the point, it's verse 15 of chapter 16, where it says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. By which John means, endure in the faith and continue to stay faithful because I'm going to come back. Um, that's the calling, but all the stuff around it, what it's really trying to do is help us feel why we should do that. Not feel it in terms of facts, but ultimately in terms of beauty and its counterpart, which is ugliness. That um, John wants us to see the ugliness of sin and its ugly consequences. And he's doing that because if we don't have, if we lose that sense of the beauty of God's ways and the ugliness of sin, we actually lose our ability to fight it. And that's something we all need to take to heart because much of sin's power rests in lying to us about its beauty. Sin convinces us that it is attractive, that we are having the good life, that we 
that we are, you know, hashtag blessed, and that we think, you know, we're convinced that it's beautiful when, in fact, it is destroying us and our world and our souls. So what we're going to do this morning from this vision is just we're going to discuss four ugly truths about sin, four realities about the ugliness of sin that will help us then fight against it. The first ugly truth is that sin brings suffering. Sin brings suffering. John, a couple of chapters ago, pictures our world as ruled by these two beasts who represent worldly empire and worldly wealth and religion, and they serve the dragon, Satan. But Jesus tells us that these beasts are marked out, or that people are marked out for these beasts. And the reason they're marked out is because it's giving them benefits in the world, that they're getting kind of economic benefits and prosperity because they're choosing to identify with the beast. With that in mind, here's the first bowl of wrath. It says, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So notice, this plague is falling on these people who were getting all the benefits of the mark of the beast. They compromise with the world in order to get this stuff. They're seeking blessing, but what they ultimately find in that compromise is affliction and suffering. And each of the judgments of follow kind of continue that imagery of suffering. Because of sin, we suffer. And in particular, many of them show us a suffering, what we might call reciprocity. Reciprocity is a fancy word that means what you do coming back on your head. So for example, in verse 5, the, um, the rivers are turned to blood, and then he says, I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Who are you, O holy one, who is and who was? For you brought these judgments... For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Which is especially, there John is focusing on those who are persecuting the saints, and he's picturing this as sort of the consequence, that they try to drink blood, and what they are given is blood to drink. There's a symmetry there. Their sin, in a sense, is giving them what they thought they wanted, but what they thought they wanted ends up being a judgment on their heads. Sin always brings suffering. And um, often it brings suffering on us. But our problem is that we don't have the eyes to see it. Now, this is going to be a hard truth. So first, let me offer a clarification. Even though that's true, sin always brings suffering. But it is important to say up front, not all of our suffering is a result of our sin. Right? That, that's an important distinction. That scripture is clear that the world is broken by sin, as we're going to discuss in just a minute. And that the world is under judgment. And so it is not the case that everything we suffer is a result of our individual sin. But it is also the case that our sin can bring suffering on us. And some not insignificant part of our suffering often is because of choices we make. But the issue is we often don't have the eyes to see it. And that's because of two realities about the suffering that sin brings. One is that sin's consequences are often delayed. Temptation is always front-loaded with pleasure, and pain comes later. In the, moment, in the moment, it feels great to lose your temper and tell your boss, you know, where you should stick it, right? <laughs> you, you feel really awesome. That's so appealing in the moment. It, in the moment, feels really good to pull out the credit card and just, you know, buy all this stuff that, you, you know, that you're wanting even though you can't afford it. In the moment, sin always feels really good, but then later, we always end up confronting the consequences. Like when you get fired— for going off on your boss, right? When the credit card comes, due comes bill. Bill comes due. 
um, when we end up feeling lost and distant from God. So sin's consequences are often delayed, and that can hide some of the suffering it brings. And sin's consequences are often diffuse. Diffuse, meaning they're spread out and kind of hard to see. I think, what, what I mean is, every, I think we think every sin should work like murder, right? Where like, I kill the guy and he's dead, and then the police come and put me in jail. And I can very easily kind of draw lines between those two events. But a lot of sin um, is spread out. In the first place, because sin itself is often spread out, right? Like, like being selfish is sinful, but it is not something that you can point to and say, this is the moment when you were selfish, right? The way you can point to it like murder. And its consequences also tend to be spread out. I mean, so you think about that selfish person, that person who just kind of uses everybody to serve their own ends and doesn't ever do anything to care for that person or look out for that other person's need. Over time, that's actually going to bring a great deal of suffering. They're going to lose relationships, and soon the only people that will be left in their lives are equally selfish people that are trying to use them. But the issue is that person can so easily look around and be like, man, like, why don't I have any good friends? And it's so hard because you can't point to just a single event. It's spread out. That's the first truth. Sin brings suffering. As we seek to fight against it, what we are called to do, therefore, is to remind ourselves of that fact. When we are tempted to sin, we need to not just look at the immediate pleasure on offer, but remind ourselves of its consequences. A second truth John shows us is that sin destroys the world. Sin destroys the world around us. Take the second bowl as the clearest example. It says, The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Now, throughout the book of Revelation, and even in other bowls of judgment, we see this pattern, although this is one of the clearest ones, but people often have this question like, why is the sea getting judged? I mean, obviously it's unpleasant for human beings to, you know, to live, right, in the world where the seas turn to blood, but it's actually, you know, the, it's the fish that are suffering here under this judgment. The answer is that in Scripture story, God creates the world as very good, and he puts humanity as his image bearers over the world, and we have authority and are supposed to work for its blessing. And when we sin, when we rebel against God, therefore the consequences don't just fall on us, but they fall on the whole world. The whole world is, in a sense, broken because of our sin. The Apostle Paul talks about it like this in Romans 8. He says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The whole creation has been crying out in pain. That word groaning means. Why? He says right before it, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now that verse, there's a lot there, but, but for this morning, what that is saying is simply this. It is saying that our sin damages the world around us, and that ultimately what God is doing is coming to rescue all of creation, not just us. That is true on just a physical level. Christians sometimes get weird about this discussion, but the Bible is very comfortable highlighting the environmental consequences of our sin. 
We are given power over the physical earth by God, and in our rebellion, the physical earth gets hurt. I mean, and look, if you are a farmer here, you know that, right? You understand that if you are greedy and impatient with your fields, that that actually hurts the soil, and that if you are patient and humble and respect, you know, that as a steward, that it will actually cause it to flourish. And so the reality is just like, look, like this is a lake of poison in China that exists in the middle of a city. Um, if you swim in that lake, you would literally have your skin be burned off. And that exists because of our massive demand for rare earth metals because of all the cell phones and tablets that we have to have. Here is a 300-mile-long island of garbage in the Pacific Ocean. Here is a dead coral reef, which took 10,000 years to grow and, like, 20 years to kill. And I realize... When you put those pictures up and talk about sin, that what people start thinking about is politics, and we are not having that discussion. But the point that I'm asking you to recognize is that our sin, in that diffuse sense, our hunger to always have the newest things, to never be satisfied, to lack contentedness and overconsume, is in a real sense the cause of that. And that's not a good thing. So sin breaks the physical world. And sin breaks the world in terms of our human society. I mean, if you open up the newspaper, right, and you look at all the problems in our world, so many of them, at root, are simply boiled down to human sin. I mean, war, right, poverty. I mean, there's enough food in the world to feed everybody. (laughs) The problem isn't that there isn't enough food. The problem is selfishness and corruption and hatred that keeps people from having food to eat. Or, um, Or even like... There's these social ills, like, like sex trafficking, um, which is horrific, but it would not exist if there were not people with an appetite for it. And lest you go running to conclusions, I mean, that even in a very, like, um, not just in the extreme way, things like, I mean, pornography, like, more than half of that is made by people who are slaves, right? It is sin that causes all of those things, and it can happen more locally. If you have ever been in proximity to somebody in the clutches of addiction, or somebody who is sort of deeply cruel and has power, or been been close to a marriage (laughs) that fell apart, right? You recognize that there's ripples that can spread outward from that sin and affect hundreds of people and affect generations. And we go through all of that just to say that we need to stop pretending like our sin doesn't hurt anybody. One of the great lies that we tell is that even our normal, everyday sins deeply hurt people. Let me just, let me just try to give you an example. Imagine just, um, imagine a guy who's at work and somebody is, you know, envious of him and spreads some rumors about it, right? Like, that is completely average in our world. Just think about, like, the ripple effects of that, potentially. I mean, Let's say he doesn't get fired, but still, like, he probably doesn't get a promotion that he might otherwise have gotten, and he's probably not going to work as hard, and the company's going to not make as much money because, you know, he's hurt and wounded by that, and and is going to do something to that work environment, right, where now other people are going to kind of be meaner to each other and harsher to each other, and maybe in the long run, you people lose jobs or are deeply wounded by that, and it's going to ripple out into his family, right, and he's going to go home that night and yell at his kids, and that's his sin, but it's also, in a sense, a consequence of the sin that this other person did to him. And, um, you know, and they might get hurt and have a more jaded view of the world and neighbors and all of that ripples outward from a completely ordinary sin. And I know we say, come on, like, 
that's, you know, it doesn't work like that, right? One event doesn't have all those consequences. But the only reason that that's sort of true is because there's so much sin going on in the world that all the ripples get blurred together, like if you threw handfuls of rocks into a pond. If we could comprehend the actual effects of our sins, if we could truly see all of them, and we did not have the gospel of Jesus Christ to cover us, if we had to bear the weight of those things, every one of us would be crushed. And again, the point of all of that is to call us to fight, to fight against our everyday sins and acknowledge their destructive consequences. The third thing that this text shows us about sin is that it deludes us. Sin deludes us. It deceives us about itself and ourselves. One of the striking things about these judgments is that they do not lead to repentance. Quite the opposite. If you take the third plague in verse 9, after the sun scorches the earth, it says the people were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And then the same thing after the fifth plague. It says people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So I'm saying, look, the earth is under judgment. We are suffering the effects of our sin. And there, um, and what we do is we do not take ownership for it, right? That all we would have to do in, in the, the narrative of Revelation is to repent and God would, um, would turn aside. But that is the very thing that we are not willing to do. Why not? Well, we get part of a hint in verse 13. John says that he saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. And this is strange, but we've got these three unclean spirits, these sort of false prophetic spirits that come out. And here's what they do in verse 14. He says they're demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So they go out and lie to the kings of the earth and deceive them and gather them together to make war against God. We're going to talk about the battle thing in a minute. But here's the point for now. He's saying that it's not just that sin hurts us and hurts the world, but also that it deceives us and warps our very way of thinking. Our minds end up deluded. I wear glasses, and the interesting thing about glasses is that when you hold them up like this, right, everyone can see them. But if you wear glasses, you know this. When you have them on, you often forget whether you have them on or not. I mean, like, at night, I often am like this to kind of check and see whether I've taken my glasses off. Because for the life of me, while they're on my face, I can't tell. I'm so used to them, I'm looking right through them. Sin works like that. You can see it from the outside, but once you put it on, it becomes almost invisible. I was thinking about it recently. Um... Our older two kids are at the point where they're really, in the last few years, grap- starting to grapple with recognizing their sin. I mean, Silas is still mostly a little sociopath, the way all little kids are. But, <laughs> but as kids age, they reach a point where they really start to feel guilt, right? And, um, and I remember a little while back, Rebecca, she's just in tears and gutted for something that she did. And, you know, she's just like, you're going to hate me if I tell you. And finally, I got her to tell me. And she's like, well, I, I called this girl stupid at recess. Here's the thing. In my heart, my first reaction was, <laughs> what? Like, who cares? <laughs> yeah, like, that's not a big deal. Um, and initially, it's like, wow, you're really overreacting. And then I have this moment of like, 
doesn't that actually say something sad about me and not her? Like, I mean, you know, she, she insulted this image bearer of God. She, you know, she demeaned this person of their dignity and, and value and worth. And the fact that none of us actually think that's a big deal is actually an indication of how much sin deludes us rather than of the fact that, um, that it's fine. Here's how I think sin's deception works. It starts out, um, we are committed to this assumption. We're like, we can't be sinful. We've got to be good people. But we do some wrong things. And so we have to square those. And so we, what we start to do in our mind is justify and explain and excuse. And the more we do that, the less able we are to even recognize that it's there. It works like this. Every sin starts out as unthinkable. And then once we do it, it becomes understandable. And then as we continue to do it, it becomes normal and maybe even noble. Let me say that again. Every sin starts out as unthinkable until we do it. And then it's totally understandable. And as we continue to live in it, it starts to become normal. And it might even become noble. We might start viewing it as a good thing. So what do we do with that? Well, mainly, that should call us to be on our guard and not trust ourselves. Scripture says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And so we, um, the more we feel like, oh, we're fine, we're not really sinful, we're not, you know, we're, we're wonderful people, um, the more we need to check our hearts because of the deceiving effects of sin. And in addition, very practically, we need to be doing two things. One, we constantly need to be reoriented by God's truth. We constantly need to have God's truth speaking to us about the reality of what we're called to be in a way that challenges our delusion. I mean, like, you know how people get brainwashed, right? Like, you hear about that in, like, camps or whatever. What they do is they just, on the loudspeakers every day, make them sit in rooms for hours, and just people tell them lies. And they tell them lies and tell them lies until eventually they start to believe them. And that, in a real sense, is what sin and the world is doing to us. And so we need to hear God's truth to push back against that. And then, two, we need each other. Because oftentimes, while we are blind to our sin, our friends can see it. So we need friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, and especially friends who are willing to call us when we're, when we're deluding ourselves and to challenge us. So that's three ugly truths. And then one more from our text. Sin opposes God. It opposes God. We're not going to camp out here because we touched on it earlier in Revelation, and we're going to touch on it again in Revelation 19. But we saw those evil spirits, and if you read verse 14 again, you see what it's doing is it's assembling the kings of the earth for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. The world is assembled for battle against the Lord. And then if you skip down to verse 16, which is a verse that lots of people have questions and ideas about, it says they assembled at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So we need to talk about that word Armageddon. There are two ways Christians read this. One is that it is describing some singular future physical battle with like tanks and stuff where there's like angels with machine guns and, you know, they're fighting against people with um, fighter jets. And I don't think that's right. Let me give you two reasons why. One, the word Armageddon itself, right? It's actually, it's a compound of two Hebrew words. One is the Hebrew word for mountain, and then the other one is Megiddo, which is this place in Israel where some battles happened, all right? Um, So Mount Megiddo, and um, here's the problem with that. Megiddo is a plain. There is no mountain of Megiddo. The mountain part 
seems at least to be symbolic, probably because in chapter 14, we see the lamb gathering his people on this mountain, and so God is picturing then the, you know, the dragon gathering his people on this mountain to do battle with the lamb. But if the mountain part is symbolic, then it's probably not a physical place in that way. And the Old Testament background for Megiddo is that it is this region with great conflicts between Israel and other nations, places like Judges 5 and Second Chronicles 35. There's these big battles. And Zechariah 12 already seems to use it almost symbolically as this place that represents God's overcoming of his foes. Um, and so the place has a lot of symbolic significance. And so taken together, that means probably what we should not be focused on is hunting through newspaper headlines for some battle that's going to happen at this plane in Israel. But rather, what we're supposed to be doing is recognizing that John is picturing this conflict um, as the conflict that exists between the world and God, between the nations in their sin and the kingdom of heaven that exists in every age. Now, it might build to some climactic thing at the end of history. That's a separate question. But when we read it, we're supposed to recognize the reality that that, in a sense, is what sin is doing. It's joining the army of the enemy of God. And that fits, then, with the image of final judgment that follows. The seventh bowl in verse 17 says it's poured out into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And so we see this judgment then on earth in verse 18. It says, There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. Now, if you remember back in Revelation 8 and Revelation 11, that exact same description happens. And in each case, it's describing God's throne room in heaven, in a sense, being open and God coming in judgment on the earth. And that's what results, is judgment. It says, The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. All of that is imagery from earlier in Revelation, and all of it is used throughout Revelation to describe God coming in this final victory against the world that opposes him. God will defeat that. So here's what we need to take from that. Sin is ugly because it causes suffering, and sin is ugly because it destroys the world, and it's ugly because it warps our own thinking, but ultimately, sin is ugly because it's opposed to God. He is awesome and majestic and perfect and holy and good. And sin is to spit in his face and make war against heaven and turn aside from his beauty. We must not lose sight of God when we talk about sin. David, in his great prayer of confession in Psalm 51, after he commits adultery and murder, he says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And by that, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't mean like, yes, like Bathsheba and Uriah, like these other people he sinned against. But he's saying, ultimately, sin is sin because it is opposed to God. Love for God and love for sin are at odds with each other. And the more of one we have, the less room for the other there is in our heart. All right. So that is the vision John gives us of the ugliness of sin and calling us to fight it. And that is not a fun sermon, I recognize. And in just a minute, we're going to come to the table and hear the context of grace. But before that, I want to try to just practically describe 
what it looks like to take all of that and actually use it to fight sin. And here's how I want to do it. Start with this. Each of us has this voice in our heads going all the time. I mean, we might not think of it as a voice. I don't mean an audible voice. But each of us has this internal monologue going on, right? That's telling us, like, desire this thing, do this thing, say this thing, want this thing. Um, And it sounds like it's just us. And our assumption is that we're like, oh, that voice is just like my, you know, my brain or whatever. And in a sense, that's true. But in another sense, biblically, it's saying that that voice is actually four different voices that just all sound the same to us. It says, one of those voices is the flesh. It's our old, sinful humanity with its desires. The flesh longs for things and encourages us to desire certain things. The second voice is the world. It is the sinful system that we live in that shapes us. So it's not just that my flesh, but also our culture and, you know, the ads on TV, all of that is shaping me to desire and think certain things. The third is the devil. Satan tempts and deceives us. There are times when these dark desires spring up in my heart that don't really seem like they're from the first two. And scripture would say that's that. And then fourth, the other voice is the spirit. It's the voice that's speaking back to those voices and proclaiming God's truth and goodness and beauty. And here's the thing. When, when, you're, when you're thinking, right, when that monologue is going on in your head, all those voices are speaking in your voice, right? Here is how we engage with that. We need to do two things. First, we need to listen critically to ourselves and say which voice is actually talking here. Is this the voice of the Spirit, or is this the flesh, or is this the world? We need to identify that. But then what we need to do beyond that is take that monologue, and when it is one of those first three influences, we need to turn it into a dialogue and speak the Spirit's truth back. And one of the main ways we do that is by reminding ourselves of the beauty of God and the ugliness of sin. Our flesh will tell us in that monologue, look at how pleasurable this would be. And our calling is to take the side of the Spirit and to respond, perhaps, but it will bring far greater suffering in the end. The world is going to say, it's not a big deal, right? Everything's doing it, it's normal, and our calling is to join with the Spirit and respond, no, even average sins like this lead to destruction the world. The devil will say, it's not even sin, it's fine, and seek to deceive us, and our call is to join with the Spirit and say, no, God's word is true, even if it makes me a liar, I believe what he will tell me, instead of what my warped mind is trying to justify. As we engage in that dialogue and tell ourselves the truth about our sin, that will actually, that's the beginning of causing it to lose its power over our hearts. That is the place where the battle is fought is there in our minds and hearts as we believe in the beauty of God. Let's pray together. God and Father, pray that you would be with us now as we seek to fight sin. I recognize that all of us wrestle in this battle. I pray that you would be near to us. Speak to us your truth and your beauty. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.